This is Alicia Free, a badass belly dancer, musician, and real food enthusiast, here to help you feel a little lighter. Each show will dive into music that makes us want to dance. We'll share secrets of looking smoking hot in costume and everyday life. We'll dote on delicious whole food that makes us glow. And I'll throw in a damn sexy dance move you can try at home. While teaching some society stick dance feeling and moves the other day, one of my students expressed that she would like to know more about different styles within belly dance. I wanted to hand her a simple and comprehensive infographic on the history of belly dance that everyone agrees on, or just hand her the universal belly dance style book. But those two things don't exist to my knowledge. There are definitely great books and diagrams out there that help us paint this picture, but there is no one picture, which is wonderful. And this complexity can be confusing to dancers who just want a better idea of what they're watching and what they're trying and what kind of dancer they want to be and who they want to emulate. This question inspired a three-part podcast series coming to you. In this episode, the first part of the series, we'll talk about belly dance up to the 1900s. Then the next two shows in this series will cover the 1900s to the 1960s, and then from the 1970s until now. Sounds like fun, right? Doing this in three parts will help us understand our belly dance world now and will bring us closer to the lineages of dancers whose ghosts may be dancing with us in our most precious moments dancing. We know that just reproducing dance moves without considering where they come from is like doing a dull aerobic exercise routine. Uninspired obligation to move. If you're listening to this podcast, you are way beyond treating dance like that. And knowing more about dance styles and history helps us enjoy watching other dancers even more. And it will make us better dancers who genuinely want to learn more and more. Let's start with a reflection and ritual that just might light up your life. Danceable Ritual Universal Spin Countless bodies in the universe have been spinning simultaneously long before human history. It's wild to think that right now we are all spinning together with the same axis, circling the sun together. It puts time into perspective to think about it, especially when time feels too slow. Minutes spent waiting in line, waiting for a real person to get on the phone to help you, or waiting for the arrival of a loved one, or trying hard to fall asleep. Wherever you are now, look at the sky. Or if there's no window, just look above where the sky always is. High above, it probably looks quite peaceful compared to the universe of chaos happening beyond what we can see. Take a deep breath and stand up. Feel your feet in full contact with the ground below. If it helps you feel nice and grounded to close your eyes, go ahead and close them. Connect to the ground below. Keep breathing. Feeling the ground in the bottom of your feet more and more with each breath. Many beings, all kinds of beings, have walked in this very coordinate where you are right now. Some may have even danced there, right there. Let yourself smile softly as you breathe. Now, toe to toe, heel to heel, begin to rotate slowly on your own axis. Stepping around the same point on the ground directly below your core, toe to toe, heel to heel, until you are slowly spinning on your own axis, just like Earth. It's comforting. Pause if you feel dizzy or fix your eyes on your shoulder or a hand at eye level. The spin is slow and small within the giant spin of the planet. And circle your head with beautifully bent arms, palms pressed together as if in prayer, directly hovering over the crown of your head, like it's an axis. 
pause. Look up. Imagine how many humans have stood in this very pose. Imagine how long the earth has been spinning. This moment will disappear with all of the other moments before. Anytime it feels like something is taking forever, you can spin slowly. Like this uber ancient planet and acknowledge that we are only alive for a flashing moment of human existence, at least in this incarnation. The Dalai Lama has said something like, 100 years, all new people. All the more reason to dance and appreciate every moment, even the moments that we wish were different. Now it's time for some music. Danceable song. Due to my confusion with fuzzy copyright laws, I am unfortunately not going to include clips of the featured songs here on the podcast unless I get permission from the artists. The featured songs will always be available on Spotify on my Belly Dance Body and Soul playlist. The Gwazi will be some of the featured dancers in this show. So let's celebrate a song off of Aisha Ali's Field Recordings album, Music of the Gwazi. I think Gwazi, the initial consonant is not g. It's more of a sound in the throat, so forgive me Arabic speakers. The word is sometimes spelled G-H-A-W-A-Z-E-E or Z-I. The song is called Rocks al Salamea by the Thebes Ensemble. Thebes, T-H-E-B-E-S. I don't know how to say it, but that's the name of the song and the artist. I wish that I had asked Aisha about this song when I spoke with her on the phone just now, Hopefully Aisha will come on the show and grace us with an interview soon, and then maybe she'll share some information on the Thieves Ensemble and share more of the immense research she's done, her experience and perspective and her wisdom. This song features a rabab, a bowed spike fiddle, and some kind of flute, probably a neigh. Aha! Aisha let me know that a salmnea is a folk instrument that is similar to a neigh, like a flute, played downwards and to the side a little bit. But this Alamnea probably has a different number of holes. I have to check on that. Thank you, Aisha. And there's clapping throughout, which always makes a recorded song feel like there's a built-in audience to me. Cyclical clapping also gives it more of a trance-like quality to me, like in Moroccan music where there's a lot of clapping. I think it's really nice. This song, Roxal Salamea, goes through several rhythms, beginning with Maksum. Doom tek, tek, doom tek, doom tek, tek, doom tek. And they throw in some measures of Saidi, with the double doom in the middle. So sometimes it's doom tech, tech, doom tech, and then it goes into doom tech, doom, doom tech, doom tech, doom, doom tech. And it sounds like there's a lead doom back embellishing and a bass doom back holding down the rhythm and a rick. The flute player seems to sample the melody of Uskadar in several places in the song, which I really like. Uskadar was the featured song in the first episode of A Little Lighter. Great song. The clapping in the song speeds up and changes as the drums go into Ayub. And then there's a little call and response singing. It's repetitive and subtle and it's nice near the end of the song and the song speeds up for a big climactic finish. It's a very organic song, very loose. I bet it's played differently every time. This recording is just one way that it has been played. And the way this song is played in this recording most likely has elements of songs that predate it hundreds of years. So it's the perfect song to dance to and to feature in this episode where we will imagine an encounter with Gwazi dancers in the 19th century with an ensemble very much like the one that's in this recording. I'll tell you when to get your imaginary time travel costume on because this show covers an era of belly dance from a mostly undocumented time. 
Movement and music have only been recorded since the late 1800s. And many of the movements that have shaped our belly dance ancestry happened behind closed doors. Much of what I'm going to share is disputed and unclear. Here's the disclaimer. This belly dance history series will not be from an academic standpoint. Many dancers have done research for us and written fantastic articles and books like the super helpful Abigail Keys, for example, and Aisha Ali. Some of the information in these podcasts will come from actual traceable sources and some will be words dancers have said to me and some will be observations from my experience. I've been dancing all over the world with amazing teachers since the year 2000. I've traveled to Egypt, Morocco, southern Spain, India. I've danced and played music with Turks, Greeks, Roma from various places, Tunisians, Algerians, Moroccans, Iraqis, Iranians, Egyptians, Syrians, Lebanese, and amazing Americans. So I'm including those experiences with what I've heard and seen and read. You don't need to believe anything I say. Just consider it and do your own research and see what helps us all contribute to the incredible world of dance that we live in. In this pre-1900s belly dance history show, we'll taste the flavor of some of the dance styles that have influenced belly dance in the past hundred years. We'll get a mental image of how belly dancers from different styles might move and what music belly dancers might have danced to and what dancers might have worn for different styles of belly dance. So sorry about kind of repeating these points, but I really want it to be clear. Number one, this is in no way meant to be a taxonomy of cultures or oversimplification of a very rich and mostly undocumented history of belly dance. I will just paint an image that may help you feel more connected and in awe of the richness of our belly dance history. Number two, this is in no way an academic or deeply researched report. Just an overview of the way things appear from where I stand. This is all my interpretation of belly dance styles that I have seen, and I hope it will be helpful for you to hear as you paint your own picture. Number three, what is referred to as belly dance is also very open to interpretation. If you are looking very specifically at the ways people who call ourselves belly dancers dance now, compared to the ways dancers from the Middle East may have danced and moved over 100 years ago, of course it's going to be different. I'm going big picture here and opening up a huge umbrella of dance styles and regions that have cross-pollinated and continue to influence each other today. Additional perspectives and info are welcome because I'm sure I've missed a ton and also see things differently from other dancers. If you have something to add or a question, please post it on the A Little Lighter Facebook group page and we'll keep painting this picture together. Recently, when I opened the Salampur School of Belly Dance Compendium, I realized much of what I was taught may have come from that book. It's a great resource and you can buy it and download it instantly on salampurstore.com, S-A-L-I-M-P-O-U-R, like pouring water, store.com. Let's start farther back than the Salampur School of Belly Dance Compendium goes. Let's start at the disputed roots of what many of us now call belly dance. Dancers documented in the Roman Empire and undocumented Ram or Gypsy lineages that traveled from the northwest of India, think Rajasthan, to southern Spain. The Roman Empire was vast and included parts of around 46 countries now known as the Balkans, Turkey, the Middle East, and the whole northern coast of Africa. The Roman Empire was a big ring of coast around that Italian boot in the Mediterranean, and people wrote things down and preserved the information. So, there are written accounts of how dancers were moving, even though we cannot be sure what that looked like. And the Roman Empire lasted for centuries and started around the time of Cleopatra, in case that's helpful. The Roma, however, have a malleable unwritten history that can be modified and leveraged continuously. And because of frequent travel, they've been pollinators. Many Romani have brought moves and concepts to people they danced for as they picked up more ideas and innovations in their travels. 
I've heard the word Romani said Romani and Romani, and I don't know which one to use, so I'm going to use both. It is less disputed that belly dance was part of life in the Ottoman Empire centuries later. The Ottoman Empire included much of the North African and more Eastern parts of the Roman Empire. I should mention that the Byzantine Empire is in here. That was the eastern part of the Roman Empire and lasted after the fall of the Roman Empire. There's more documentation from European travelers as early as the 18th century writing about dancers they saw while visiting the Middle East and other parts of the Ottoman Empire. We've all heard that belly dance was part of ancient birthing rituals, and I've always liked that story. But researchers like Aisha Ali and others have written that there's really no written evidence of this. This brings up the point that most travelers throughout history have been men. Therefore, we have a much smaller number of travel accounts written by women who might have gained access to these exclusive women-only places. Even if travelers did get to see dancing in the women's quarters, they might have been asked not to share information about it with others, or even felt that it was appropriate. So there's a whole world of women dancing for and with each other behind closed doors that has not been documented. This is another great opportunity to mention the book When the Drummers Were Women by Lane Redman. It's about drumming, it's not about dancing specifically, but it goes back to a time of ritual and a time where goddesses were worshipped instead of the male gods that were put into place during the Roman Empire. Very interesting stuff. Back to dancing before the 1900s. Just think about women before the 1900s living together in their own part of a giant house owned by a wealthy family for a moment. They probably did not have the regular household duties of a wife with less means. They may have been quite educated and able to focus on specific talents like dance and music. They may have had more time and money to dress up. And they may have had the resources to invite well-known dancers in to dance for them with an audience entirely of women. The Awalim, which were women who were educated in the arts, were invited to entertain in the women's quarters in Egypt and possibly some other places. And maybe some of the dancers that these wealthy women invited into their homes were Ram, who had been dancing with their families in camps in several countries since they were babies. Maybe some of them were Gwazi, or Egyptians who were known for performing dance in public and may be descendants of Ram. Side note, I don't know if Gwazi people consider themselves Gypsy or Ram, or if they identify as something else. Forgive me, correct me. I'd love to know, but I don't know yet. Nobody I've ever met has told me they're Gwazi. I don't even have one perspective to go on here. Back to this women's only part of the house. This space reserved for women in a wealthy Islamic home can also be referred to as a harem where women could live unveiled, a forbidden place for most men to enter. For many of us in the West, the word harem has a negative connotation. Very young women kept indoors, enslaved, multiple wives of one man living in a hierarchy, etc. Some harems could also be seen as protected spaces where women were able to live together without men watching them most of the time. Don't get me wrong, I bet there were some harems where life was hard, just like homes where there's life is hard. And I bet there were harems where the arts blossomed. Let's consider that there could have been some pretty amazing dancing done in these spaces. There were more groups who were documented as dancers in the 1800s, like the Waled Nahil tribes of Algeria. In English, it's often spelled O-U-L-E-D-N-A-I-L. French travelers noticed the Waled Nahil dancing and their style. The way the Waled Nahil used layers of scarves and coins and big necklaces and silver chains around their waists has either directly or indirectly inspired many of the belly dance costumes we wear now. The Salampur School of Belly Dance Compendium states that contemporary writers on oriental dance claim it was probably the Waled Nahil practice of dancing for dowries and wearing their earnings on their clothing that contributed to the use of coins in the 
westernized belly dance bra and belt. The Walid Nikhil practiced this custom until the 1930s. So interesting. I hope that was helpful and I haven't enraged any historians that are listening yet. As I stated before, it would be very helpful to all of us if you share your thoughts on our A Little Lighter Facebook group page. Now it's time to get your time travel costume ready. Let's imagine we are the wealthy matriarchs of a household in Cairo in the 1800s. And we love dance and paying dancers to dance for us and teach us. After months of searching, we've brought four dancers into our home. A well-respected Alma from Cairo. Alma is the singular form of Awalim, the educated dancers. A pair of popular Gwazi, or singular Gazia, performers from a village outside of the city. A Walid Nahil performer friends told us about who is visiting from Algeria. And a striking Romani woman who does not call herself a Gazia that we met in the market. We are celebrating the birth of a child in the family. All of the women in the house and friends we invited have been looking forward to this, and now it is time. We have the best musicians in Cairo here with their frame drums, goblet drums, a couple rabab or you know, bowed spike fiddles, a neigh, and their voices. There may be a mizmar in there. We ask each dancer to perform for us, and we have asked that we can dance with them as well. We will pay them in coins and bracelets and necklaces that we have chosen for them. First, the Alma steps up. She is comfortable in this house. She's wearing white pantaloons made of so much fabric and a choli which leaves her belly exposed. She asks the musicians to play a dance song that is popular now with her wealthy benefactors, and the musicians know it well. Maybe it's Lamabado or another beautiful muasha. She opens her arms at a diagonal, one hand reaching for the high corner of the sky and the other for the earth below. She spins slowly like the earth, rotating. She's graceful and stunning. When the Alma is finished, the pair of Gwazi women rise up in their long open front coats over their knee-length skirts and their pantaloons. One Gazia reties her hip scarf so it's tighter as she asks the musicians for a faster rhythm. Some of the musicians are also Gwazi and they agree on a song that will impress the hosts. These Gwazi dancers want to shimmy and they shimmy from side to side rather than mostly up and down as the Alma did. It's beautiful and the audience loves it. After the song ends in a dancing frenzy, we all cheer. The Gwazi pair loosen some of the layers of clothing they are wearing as they return to their cushions where cups of water await them. Coins clink together as the Walid Nahil dancer rises. Even far from home, she has a bold smile on her lightly tattooed face. She sings a simple melody to the spike fiddle players a few times, and they pick it up quickly. Then the dancer claps out a rhythm popular in Algeria, and the drummers follow, playing that rhythm in their own style. Her moves are sharp, more focused on power than grace like the Alma and Gwazi pair. She punctuates with some hops when the music breaks, which is something neither the Alma or Gwazi dancers did. Again, the women of our household and our friends love the performance. We love seeing the way these different dancers move. When the song is over, the Walid Nahil dancer keeps smiling and returns to her cushion. Now it is time for the Romani woman to dance. She's hesitant. No one knows where she's from or anything about her, really. It seems like she's never been in a house like this, and we consider that she might rarely spend time in homes of people that are not Rom. She has brought two women from her family who are also musicians, so they can lead the band while she dances. She's the only dancer wearing a skirt and a vest. The musicians get together and decide what they will play while the dancer nervously adjusts her skirt and jewelry. We can see that she's relieved when it's clear the music is going to start and she can finally dance. One of the Rom musicians starts by playing a taksim changing the air in the entire room, inviting the dancer to share a glimpse of her secrets, invoking dance. The room is silent except for the music and the sound of clinking jewelry. 
Everyone is enthralled by the dancer and musician who are so closely connected. They may have been doing this together for most of their lives. We're being transported to a place we've never been just by watching them. The other musicians are lounging, mesmerized by the show, just like the rest of us. Near the end of their beautiful toxim, the soloist gives a signal to the other musicians that it's almost time for them to play. The spell is broken and the musicians rustle back into position. The rhythm returns as fingers touch the animal skins of the drums and the strings of the other instruments, and the dancer responds with movements we've never seen. Gestures from another place, footwork and facial expressions very unlike the other dancers, as well as a few movements mirroring the dance of the Alma, Gwazi Pear, and Wela Nahil dancer. Now that she's warmed up and the room is smiling, the dancer wants to raise the energy. She dances to a more delicate wooden chair in the back of the room, and she dances to it and around it. We've never seen this before. The dancer references for two of the younger women to carry the chair back to where she was dancing, up where more people could see her, and they do. What's she going to do? Does she need to sit down? After the chair is placed in the middle of the room, and she has danced around it a bit, the Ram woman bows over the chair as if she's finished dancing, and grabs the top corner of the chair with her teeth. All of the sudden, the chair is flipped upside down in the air and she's dancing beneath it, balancing the chair above her face, clenching it in her teeth. The musicians and the audience lean forward in shock. This was totally unexpected. She continues to dance with the chair in her teeth, everyone dreading that the chair will fall on top of her or someone else close to her. Without touching the chair with anything but her teeth, the chair drops to her shoulder level and she starts spinning. The audience gasps and protects the children sitting next to them. Concentration shapes the dancer's face. She slows the spin down and lowers the chair to the ground, finally touching the chair with her hand to stop the spinning and set it down. The musicians end the song dramatically, and she bows and steps out of the center. What just happened? The audience is stunned and happy. All of the dancers are invited up to be appreciated and the musicians keep playing. Now it is time for all of us to rise up off the carpets and cushions and dance. Each of us gravitates toward the dancer we like the best and tries to dance like them. They simplify what they are doing now, repeating movements and making smaller movements so we can follow. The whole room is dancing. You've seen that Princess Raja dance from 1904, right? She was a belly dancer in Coney Island in the 1890s, I guess, and she could pick up a chair in her teeth and dance and I'm guessing she might have seen it somewhere or maybe she created it but who knows people may have been doing that in other places for a while. So yes this whole imaginary scene was made up and is not a recreation of a documented event but something like this may have happened and the Awalim, Waled Nahil and Gwazi and other Ram were known to dance and the point here is to have us imagine an unknown history behind this dance that we love to remember that it has been transferred from person to person in unknown infinite incarnations. Let's do some dancing. Damn sexy dance move. Did you catch the damn sexy dance moves and the make you shine costume tips in that visualization? Let's highlight a dance move from each of our imaginary dancers. These are loosely based on historical paintings and written accounts. We'll begin with a dance pose seen in paintings of the Awalim, or Alma, if we're referring to a single dancer. These paintings often show pairs of dancers. Open your arms soft but straight on a diagonal, one arm about 45 degrees from shoulder level and the other arm 45 degrees below shoulder level, as if you were starting a barrel turn. Let's call these Alma arms for fun. The next damn sexy dance move is a Gwazi shimmy. According to the Salampur School of Belly Dance Compendium, 
Traveler Edward W. Lane said the Gwazi performed unveiled in the public streets and their dancing had little of elegance. <laughs> what? With its chief peculiarity being very rapid vibrating motion of the hips from side to side. So let's try a side to side Gwazi shimmy, sometimes also called a side to side Egyptian shimmy, where we very rapidly vibrate our hips from side to side. I wish I could do a British accent. I don't know if Edward Lane was British. Do a couple hip slides first. Horizontal slides, they can be small hip slides, just moving horizontally from side to side. Now add a little shimmy. And you may be dancing similar to the way the dancers were when Edward Lane wrote his account. Now for some Walid Nail accents. It was written that at least some of these dancers did sharp moves and that they danced for coins. So try some sharp accents with your hips. Some chest pops, some hip pops, maybe some pop and lock, I don't know. What do you think would have motivated people in the market to add coins to the dancers' collections? Try that. And finally, in honor of the ROM dancers everywhere, let's do a travel step. Some steps that take us to a new place and then circle back around to where we were before and then take us to another place. It can be a three-step turn, a basic Egyptian moving forward and back, an arabesque, a grapevine. Anything you like to do is a travel step. Now let's take a moment to dote on delicious whole food that makes us dancers glow. Featured light in my body food. Fava beans. These broad beans are a loved breakfast in Egypt and have been for a long time. And they're also one of my go-to Middle Eastern restaurant favorites called Ful Medamas. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but F-U-L-M-E-D-A-M-M-E-S is how I've seen it spelled. The beans are cooked on low heat for hours and then mashed and seasoned with salt and pepper and cumin and oil. And sometimes they add lemon juice, chilies, onions, and serve them with arugula on the side. It's a favorite stew base in several Middle Eastern countries, as well as a loved bean all over the world. In Thailand, we eat them fried and popping out of their shells just as snacks. But we don't eat fava beans in the U.S. very much for some reason. I just cooked some fava beans at home for the first time the other day and they turned out creamy and delightful without even being mashed. I might have cooked them too long but I really liked the texture. There's a simple recipe on my website aliciafree.com of just cooked fava beans and za'atar. Just buy a za'atar spice blend and you can sprinkle it on there and it's delicious. You can dip pita in it or eat this on green salad with lots of parsley and with a green like couscous or quinoa. Throw some olives in there. It's easy to make delicious fava beans gluten-free, vegan, oil-free and it's even nice to eat them chilled. They don't even have to be hot. Big soft beans are so satisfying. Fava bean salad is always in the deli case of this historic grocery store where our band likes to perform. To me, the size of these beans makes them more of an entree than a, a side dish. And fava beans are also used to make falafel. I thought chickpeas made up falafel, but why not use any bean that works? You might want to add fava beans to your grocery shopping list and give them a try, just like the Egyptian breakfast, Fulmedamas. Let's play dress up. Make you shine, costume tip. There's not just one costume tip in this episode, but three! And these costume tips are coming directly from paintings and photographs of the historical dancers we just featured. A Gwazi costume tip. Get yourself a Gwazi coat. You can find them online or sew one, get a pattern. I brought a tiny printout of a classic painting of Ottoman Empire dancers to a sweet tailor in Rajasthan, picked out some hand-printed cotton, and had a Gwazi coat made. I think it cost me $30, which is amazing. And I'm looking for a form-fitting, shin-length, stretchy cotton dress at thrift stores that I can slit open on the lower sides and then cut an extreme scoop neckline out, and then wear over hair and pants and a dance bra and it will be kind of a quasi coat situation. Awalim costume tip. Use lots of fabric when you make harem pants or pantaloons. 
I personally like my harem pants to be as little fabric as possible because it's often hot to have them under my skirt and I've tripped on really full pantaloons, but pantaloons and harem pants that use a lot of fabric look beautiful. And if you know a trick to not tripping on them, let me know that and I'll share it. The third costume tip, the Walid Nail costume tip, Wear coins, especially around your face. Whether it's a headband with coins or a string of coins draped under your chin, real coins are heavy, but they can add so much to your costume. There are a bunch of coochie coins in my sewing things that I may need to make into some kind of Walid Nail inspired headpiece. Hmm. If you have a costume tip to share, please send it my way via Facebook or an email through my site. Let's get real. Saint of Truth. As stated earlier in this episode, I am not a historian and there may be many errors in this show, so please let me know if there are on the Facebook group page. I'll share corrections in future episodes and thank you as well. I refuse to let the perfect be the enemy of the good, and there was tons of great info in this episode, right? Thanks for listening. I hope you've enjoyed the show. Please subscribe and let your friends know what you got out of this show. Dance with me on YouTube, listen to the music I've selected for you on Spotify, and try some free vegan recipes on aliciafree.com. This is Alicia Free, hoping this show helped you feel a little lighter.